When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Live in the Bream with the host of Fox News Sunday, Shannon Bream. This week on Live in the Bream, we have one of my very favorite topics. If you know me at all, you know how much I love the Supreme Court. If loving it is wrong, I don't want to be right. Uh, it is time for a little legal nerding out. If you and I'm not saying that about my guest. He's a very cool dude. I am not. <laughs> I get kind of geeky when it comes to these topics. But joining us today is uh, Professor Steve Laddick. He is a professor at the University of Texas. He's got a brand new book out. If you want to understand a little bit more about the inner workings of the Supreme Court, um, it's called The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. All right, Not everybody feels that way about what's going on in the court, but the professor makes his case, and we will talk about why. Professor Welcome to Live in the Bream. Thanks, Shannon. Great to be with you. Okay, so let's start here. The The premise of the book is there are a lot of things that get decided at the court without what most people probably think happens there, without a full briefing and a full schedule and full arguments. There is this thing that has become called by many the shadow docket. Some people think that's pejorative, but we'll dig into what it actually is. But your premise in the book and what you want to shine a light on is the fact that a lot of very big decisions, very substantive decisions get made without that full process. A lot of people think that cases may go through. Let's start with just the very tip top of this. How many cases are appealed to the court every year versus how many they actually take and actually handle on the merits? Yeah. So, you know, Shannon, the, the total number of appeals the Supreme Court is asked to decide each term fluctuates between 5,000 and 6,500. Um, last couple of years, it's been closer to the bottom end of that range. But as you know, the Supreme Court only agrees to take up really about 1%, maybe a little over 1% of all of those cases. So, you know, this term, we expect the court to decide maybe 57 or 58 cases on its merits docket. Um, that's been a pretty consistent number each of the last couple of years. And all of this other stuff, like in the, in the 99% of the other cases, the court is resolving things without explanation um, in ways that can have pretty significant effects, um, either directly or indirectly. And that's a big part of the story the book is trying to tell is, you know, mm -hmm. those effects matter whether we like them or not. Yeah, because what happens um, for people who are maybe not as attentive to this um, as we are, is if a case gets turned away, you're stuck with the lower court decision. So in a way, that is a decision, because if the court doesn't decide to hear it, then whatever the lower court decided is the end of the case. So it does put some finality to that argument, unless a similar topic, similar case winds its way through the court at some future point. So we're talking one percentage, maybe less of what they actually get to on the merits. Um, I've been covering the court for 15, 16 years now, and I've seen this number drop. So the number of cases they're actually taking has really kind of slowed down. What do you think is going on at the court that they're taking even fewer things on the merits? It's a great question, Shannon. I, I think part of it is that, you know, changes in the composition of the court. As as you know, it takes four justices 
out of the nine to agree to take up a case. Um, since you know Justice Barrett replaced Justice Ginsburg in 2020, it's no longer possible for the four Democratic appointees by themselves, since there aren't four, now there are only three, um, to get a case onto the court's docket. So now you need at least one of the Republican appointees on every single grant. Um, I think also, Shannon, with you know the sort of the hollowing out of the middle of the court, um, there's less of the sort of old school approach of, of the court taking cases, say that Justice O'Connor or Justice Kennedy wanted the court to take. Um, now it's, I think, much more sort of one-sided insofar as when the court's getting involved. But also, and I think this is a point that that really has no partisan or ideological valence, I think it's just that the justices are increasingly viewing their job as not extending to ordinary um, appellate resolution, to ordinary correction of lower court errors, and really viewing their job increasingly as just resolving those massively important questions of national importance, or you know, when two lower courts, when two circuits, for example, have squarely divided. And that's why we've seen, I mean, Shannon, a fairly precipitous drop from you know 90 cases per term as recently mm -hmm. as 20 years ago to even the high 70s as recently as 10 years ago now we're under 60 and just one one last thing on that you know this is going to be the fourth term in a row that the court doesn't even get to 60 merits decisions before 2019 the last time that it happened was 1864 Ooh. um and and right and so part of the story the book is trying to tell is like this is important um and when we talk about the court we should be talking about the court holistically and not just as the sum total of the big merits decisions with which we're all going to either agree or disagree. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we have fewer of those, although you and I at this moment could say, I mean, we're 30 plus cases um, with allegedly only five weeks left in the court somewhere around there. Um, what do you make of that? I mean, it's a it's a side rabbit trail, not really what your book is about, but I'm just curious what you think about, um, you know, there have been a lot of questions about, oh, does this have to do with the leak last year? And they're holding the cases more tightly to the vest and the way they circulate them is different, although the chief continues to say procedurally nothing's mm -hmm. changed here. But I don't remember a year being this close to June that we had 30 plus cases left. Meaning no, we're waiting I mean, for the opinions. No, and, and indeed, I mean, by percentages, you know, Adam Feldman, I think, has some pretty good research suggesting that by percentage, the court is further behind at this point in the term than it ever has been before. Um, and, and I guess, you know, Shannon, the, the way that that dovetails with the book is just that I think there are ways in which we have become acclimated to talking about the court that, you know, that doesn't pay enough attention to what's happening behind the scenes, if you'll forgive it, in the shadows, right? That doesn't pay enough attention to how the court is operating differently, the implications of the fact that the court is taking fewer cases, is deciding them later. And, you know, we can speculate about why this is happening. I think it's not just the aftermath of the leak. I also think there's an unusually high concentration of very divisive cases still to come, mm -hmm. over which I'm sure the justices are you know, battling whether politely or not um, behind the scenes. <laughs> but but I think, you know, the broader the part of why I wrote this book is because I think there are lots of folks who care about the court, but who haven't necessarily um, had the benefit of going to law school and sort of having mm -hmm. an education in the kinds of procedural and structural processes that really would allow us to better understand what's weird about the court's behavior, what's out of the norm, um, and where we might actually think there's room for reform that has nothing to do with how the court's ruling in a case like Dobbs or a case like Bruin. We'll have more Live in the Bream in a moment. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. We're talking to um, Professor Steve Laddick of the University of Texas. He's got a brand new book out called The Shadow Docket. It's all about the inner workings of the Supreme Court. So let's talk about this idea that's getting, that is all the attention of the shadow docket, which is cases that come to the court on emergency, you know, measures and filings, whether they want to stay in a case, whether they want an expedited writ of certiorari, which would get them to actually have their case heard at the court. There's a lot of this stuff, especially during COVID. We saw so many of these emergency appeals, people who couldn't go to church or go to school or whatever it was. Um, You know, the justices who push back on this idea of a, quote, shadow docket, where they're making these decisions in these cases in expedited fashion, will say they're getting more emergency appeals, which is true. Let's take a step back for a second, though, that a lot of this traces back, you write, to the 1970s, where people started using this. And gosh, I feel like we get these every week now. Um, There are these emergency appeals having to do with executions. And that's something I think everybody agrees. Okay, that's life and death in the balance. They need to take an emergency look at it that. But did that sort of now give birth to the idea that everybody wants to file emergency appeals and filings and requests and stay requests? Um, they become very common. They, they have become common. And I think the, the real shift, Shannon, is exactly the one that, that you've anticipated, which is, you know, before 1980, the norm was when there was any kind of an emergency application, um, the court would handle it through the circuit justice, through the one of the nine justices mm-hmm. who had They're responsibility all, yeah, assigned for to yep. handle a different geographic region. Exactly so. And and the, the 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 advantages of that approach were threefold, right? One, um, a circuit justice by himself uh, would be more nimble, um, right? So it was often the case that circuit justices would hold what we called in-chambers oral arguments on these applications. Um, two, the circuit justice would often write an opinion where it would just be a very short opinion explaining why he was always a he back then had ruled that <laughs> back way. Back in the day. Back in the day. Um, but third, you know, Shannon, no one would confuse um, a, a short opinion by, say, Justice William O. Douglas for an opinion to the full court. And so you had this sort of helpful balance of giving the parties as much of a chance to be heard as possible without actually having a decision that had broad impacts beyond that dispute. The rise of the death penalty, the reinstitution of the death penalty in the late 1970s precipitates a really big shift where all of a sudden the court starts taking any remotely divisive emergency application and having the full court decide it as opposed to the circuit justice, not having oral argument on the application, not typically writing any kind of opinion. And you know, for the better part of 35 years, that behavior is happening, but it's happening over there in the very unique context of the death penalty, where, you know, Shannon, you asked folks who clerked on the court in the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, what they remember of the shadow docket is the death docket. Mm-hmm. And I think that the shift in the shift that starts in the mid 2010s is we start to see parties following the lead of the federal government, um, going to the court far more often for what used to be very death penalty specific forms of emergency relief in cases that have much broader implications, cases about whether state or federal policies can be um, uh, carried into force even if a lower court has blocked them. Um, Cases about challenges to COVID restrictions, cases about congressional redistricting. I mean, you name it. 
And all of a sudden, it's become fodder for emergency applications. It's a big part of how we got to where we are today. Mm-hmm. I kind of think it's frustrating for the justices in some respects, too, because they, in many cases, want to see these things percolate through, as you said, if you end up with a circuit split in the lower courts or something else that they feel like the issue has had a more full vetting than before it gets to them. And um, when you add these emergency things into the regular life and work schedule, or if they're on overseas teaching assignments during the summer, whatever it is, um, I don't think they want to handle things this way. I mean, as a rule, um, but it has, it seems, become, I felt like, I remember looking at my husband at one point who I tried to convince to go to law school after I went, but he was too smart for that. Um, but I remember kind of looking at him and saying, like, I feel like everything in the Supreme Court is turning into an emergency docket. I feel like that's how they're getting things done. And that's, you know, just the way things are operating here. So um, that's certainly has been a practice over the years, but it feels like it's increased. Now, let's talk about critics of this idea that the shadow docket is in some way nefarious or what's happening there. I want to read something from Wall Street Journal editorial piece, uh, their board there that said, why has what is formally known as the, quote, orders list become a lightning rod? The short answer is that the Supreme Court has moved in a conservative direction. So Democrats in the legal establishment have ramped up the volume on their criticism. If Hillary Clinton had won the 2016 election, and the court had a liberal majority, you can be sure Democratic senators would not be warning gravely about the impact of unsigned orders on the, quote, public's trust. So what do you make of that argument? You talked about the makeup of the court. I mean, it is what it is. If the makeup of the court were liberal and also using these emergency expedited, you know, measures to get things done, would there still be criticism from the left? Uh, you know, I, I can't speak for the left. Um, I, I, I like to think I would still be critical because, and I try really hard in the book to make this point. One of the things that I think has become too endemic to how a lot of folks talk about the Supreme Court is everything depends upon just who wins and who loses. Um, and we've lost sight of the way that we want the court mm-hmm. to operate as an institution. So, you know, Shannon, there are examples in the book of cases where I think the court in my view reached the wrong result, but the right way. So the CDC eviction moratorium, you know, mm-hmm. I disagreed with the analysis the court provided, but Shannon it provided analysis, uh, right? I mean, right. there was there was there's a, a there. there was a yep there was a majority opinion that applied the correct standard of relief um, that explained why it thought each of the four factors were satisfied, and I just happened to disagree with what it said, but I think that was by the book, right? Versus whether it's the you know uh, Navy SEALs vaccine mandate or the nationwide access to mifepristone. You know, mm-hmm. there are policies that have support from across the political spectrum. There are policies on both sides of the political spectrum that the court has either blocked or unblocked through unsigned, unexplained orders. Where my concern is not the bottom line. My concern is that the absence of a justification, the absence of a rationale makes it look much more like a political, not necessarily partisan, but a political act mm-hmm. than a judicial act. Um, and, you know, I mean, you know, the court has always described itself as deriving authority from its ability to provide principled justifications for its decision making, not because we're all going to agree with the principles that justices are espousing, but because we're hopefully going to agree that they are principles. And that's what's missing when the court is handing down these high profile and yet unexplained, unsigned rulings that are producing such massive effects on the ground. And Shannon, increasingly, as the book tries to document, that are producing effects that at least appear to be inconsistent, where there's no obvious overarching legal principle that explains why case A is coming out one way and case B is coming out another. 
Yeah, just so I don't want to skip ahead because you and I are so far in the weeds on this stuff, but just so folks understand, these emergency appeals, as you said, will go to a specific justice the majority of the time. And so what happens there is the country's divided up in these circuits and there's a different justice assigned to the different circuits. So say a case comes out of, you know, wherever and, and lands with Justice Kagan and she can decided on her own, as you explained earlier, or now she can send it to the full court for a decision. And what may happen is we then get um, something back that's simply an order that says the grant uh, of the stay or, or, you know, stay is denied. We're not going to grant it. And there may be no, there's generally no vote count. You may know who dissented if you get um, somebody who files a dissent with that notice. But a lot of times there's not even that. So you don't know who voted how. Um, You only know what the end result is. And so that is your concern that things that can be substantive in nature are decided by these uh, these orders without names, without votes, without explanation. Right. And I mean, just to put that into context for a second, you know, let me let me just give you two quick examples. So there was a death penalty case in Alabama last year where the court intervened to block an execution. And we know where seven of the justices were because Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Thomas and Kavanaugh publicly dissented. And there was a concurring opinion that was joined by Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Barrett. So that's seven. Um, We know that at least one of the two missing justices, Alito or Gorsuch, had to join in voting for relief. We know there had to be five votes, but we don't know which one and we don't know Mm -hmm. why. Um, So that's that's sort of, I think, a colorful illustration of the of the sort of the opaqueness of these decisions. But to the point about sort of why that's a problem. In the abstract, I don't think it is. Like, I don't think anyone's losing sleep if the court doesn't provide a vote count when it denies certiorari, when it refuses to take up a meritless appeal. But if you look at, for example, Trump immigration policies versus Biden immigration policies, and we're all going to disagree about those policies, um, there was this tendency on the court's part to freeze lower court injunctions of Trump immigration policies out of respect for the deference due to the executive branch, out of hostility to the so-called nationwide injunction that we haven't seen in the Biden cases, where the court has not frozen nationwide injunctions against Biden policies. And, you know, Shannon, maybe there's a good explanation for why one set of cases came out one way and one set came out the other. The problem is that when the court is not providing those explanations, it's hard for those who are more skeptical and more cynical to be disabused of the notion that these are you know, political decisions and not judicial ones. And that to me is the problem. Now, not that folks are gonna think a particular decision is right or wrong, but that the broader pattern of the court's decision-making because it's unexplained um, and because it's hard to fashion neutral principles to it to sort of map onto them, um, paints the court in an especially problematic and unflattering light. So what do you say to those who say, listen, they quote the famous quote, justice delayed is justice denied. I mean, some of these cases have got to be handled in an expedited decision making way. I mean, whether it is a death penalty case or something else where one of the parties is um, clearly going to suffer some kind of harm. And, you know, we always talk about irreparable harm. But, you know, there are emergency matters that have to be handled. What about this idea of delaying justice as being a problem as well? It's unquestionably a problem. And, and I think this is you know, a critical point that I hope comes through in the book. I'm not averse to the court having a shadow docket, right? I'm not averse to the court having the need to handle certain emergencies. The problem is not the existence of a shadow docket. The problem is not the existence of you know, some Supreme Court intervention when you have a genuine emergency. The problem is that the court really ought to be 
at least trying to explain itself where possible. Mm -hmm. So that one, right, there's at least some principle justification when the court is handing down decisions with such massive effects, even if the the justification for doing so is urgency, is exigency. Um, But two, it also insulates the court from charges that it's manipulating, for example, what is and what isn't an emergency. I mean, we've seen cases that the court has handled through emergency orders in the last couple of years where the parties had waited five months to appeal. Um, We saw a redistricting case from Alabama where in February the court treated as an emergency the maps that were going to be used for the November midterms. And so, again, like the point is not that there's no possible justification for the court's behavior. The point is that by failing to provide justifications, the court is really, I think, shooting itself in the foot. Um, and not sort of helping against charges that this is motivated by, you know, partisan policy preferences more than adherence to underlying coherent, neutral legal principles and methodological approaches. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the justices on either side of this debate have have spoken out, uh, whether it's through dissents or through public uh, conversations and speeches. Um, one that Justice Alito made at Notre Dame Law School got a lot of attention where he talked about this and he said, you know, something we touched on earlier is like we're getting more emergency work done because we're getting more uh, emergency filings. Um, but he also said this. He says the catchy and sinister term shadow docket has been used to portray the court as having been captured by a dangerous cabal that resorts to sneaky and improper methods to get its ways. And this portrayal feeds unprecedented efforts to intimidate the court or damage it as an independent institution. I'll give you a chance to respond to that. Well, I can't, again, speak for what other people do, but I try very hard in the book to make the case, and I hope folks will will you know read it for themselves and, and see, um, that I actually think the point of my critique um, is actually to help the court, is to actually help the court get over um, this, I think, perception that it's acting in ways that are problematic. And, you know, the larger problem here, Shannon, is whatever you think of the term, we can call it the banana docket. Um, The issue is not what you call it. The issue is what's happening on it. And so the book really tries to build a case with receipts for how, if you look at the court's overall behavior, if you put all of these rulings next to each other, you really do see a pattern of behavior that's problematic. Not necessarily that's sort of nefarious, but that is um, not, I think, putting the court's best foot forward. And that really comes through, I think, Shannon, when we start talking in the latter parts of the book about, for example, election cases, where there are a number of cases during the 2020 election cycle where the justices intervened um, to block changes to voting rules that various states had adopted in response to COVID, right? Trying to make it easier, for mm-hmm. example, to vote absentee or to vote, um, you know, drive through voting was the subject of one of these yeah. cases. Exactly so. And, you know, that sounds like a consistent through line until you get to this really important case the court had out of Florida about the reenfranchising of felons, um, something Florida voters had agreed to do through a constitutional amendment, where the same sort of justification that had seemingly explained why the court was blocking all of these other changes in the law um, to avoid the specter of voter confusion should have cut the other way, right? Where the district court, the trial level court, um, had ruled a year and a half earlier that the felon dis- that the felon reenfranchisement had to go forward. And it was blocked at the last minute by the Court of Appeals. Under the court's own precedence, that case was screaming out for the court to step in and unblock the lower court ruling, and the court didn't. Um, and you know, the only thing that explains the difference between that case and the other cases 
is that had the court intervened in that case, it would have been a massive boon to Democrats in Florida. Again, the, maybe the justices had some other reason why intervention was not warranted there, but it was warranted in the other cases. But Shannon, because they don't provide that justification, it really just makes the court look very, very partisan in ways that are not necessarily how the justices are choosing to behave, but in ways that are unavoidable. It is a fascinating new book. Um, where you come down on it, um, it gives you a very deep dive into the inner workings of the Supreme Court. And do you think they're getting it right or getting it wrong? Uh, Professor Steve Laddick's new book, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. It's a heavy title. It's an interesting read. And listen, if you want to know more about the court, you're going to be intrigued and you may have more questions, more answers when you get done with it. Um, Professor, congratulations on the book and um, all of your insight with regard to covering the court. I know for those of us who get to do that, it's a joy. So great to have you on Live in the Bream. Thanks, Jen. It's great to be with you. And I'm really I'm, I'm really looking forward to folks reading the book and hopefully making their own judgments about whether yeah. this behavior is good or not. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.